0: From 1979
1: to today. This is episode 2.43, Rosamia Bound. And we're your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan. And I love this show, but it would be a lot easier to love it if any of the characters learned even one thing from any of their mistakes.
0: And I'm Nina, new to Zeta and wondering... How much sadder will things get as we enter the home stretch of the series? Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 295 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters William F., Andrew S., Brian H., and Ade W. Apologies if that's the wrong pronunciation. Made an educated guess. If you would like to support the podcast, but can't afford to spend money right now, write us a review. This week in Dispatches from New York, we are feeling pretty wrung out, me more than Tom, to be honest. It can be difficult to think creatively and deeply about things like Zeta, when the mind is completely occupied with so many big concerns. But we are planning something a little different for next week as a palate cleanser from the heavy concerns of Zeta and a brief break as we enter the final arcs of the series. And as a counterpoint to last week's encouragement to support others during this difficult time, we also want to remind you it's okay if you can't operate as normal. There's kind of a lot going on, and it's to be expected that everything is a bit harder. Or a lot harder. Rest, be kind to yourselves.
1: This week, we are covering Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 42. Goodbye, Rosami. After the recap and our talk back, we have some research on the bound dock.
0: But first, let's tune in to Titans News Network. <music>
1: Welcome, I'm Tom Thompson, and this is Knowledge Skirmish. The Spacenoid Media Industrial Complex continues to cover for their terrorist AUG allies this week as dishonest mainstream orbital outlets like Globespan, ZNN, Raya Broadcasting, and the Times of Granada publish blatant AUG propaganda claiming that the Titans are using G3 gas to exterminate rebellious colonies. Now, folks, stories like these make me so mad. They make me so mad that my eyes quiver and there are flames, flames on the sides of my face. I get so mad because I hate lies. I hate them. I hate knowing that these dishonest lie merchants are out there right now, every day, spreading lies and misinformation to innocent folk just like yourselves. So these liars are saying that the Titans are using G3 gas Can you believe that? I can't. The Titans are heroes. And anyone who accuses them of some dishonest, reprehensible crime like using poison gas against a civilian colony should be ashamed of themselves. You know what I think, folks? I think this is an AUG false flag operation. That's right. I think AUG is trying to cover up their own crimes by pinning them on the Titans. Makes sense too, doesn't it? The AUG are terrorists. And who uses poison gas? terrorists. Therefore, AUG is using poison gas. Well, that's just basic logic, folks. Besides, how do we even know that G3 gas is as bad as the out of touch, dishonest media claims? I've never breathed any, and I bet you haven't either. Everyone knows that the artificial air we breathe in space is only partly oxygen, but what are the other parts? I don't know. No one does. Maybe G3 is necessary for human life, and it's actually the lack of G3 gas that kills people. We're all free citizens of the Earth Federation, a wholly owned subsidiary of the Titans, aren't we? We have the right to decide for ourselves which gases we inhale. Now I'll be right back with more yelling, but first some bluster from one of our sponsors. Jupiter's brand topical testosterone supplements. Let our space science make you into a real man. Available in classic Paptimus, a new Yazan style.
0: This is Recycled Atmosphere on 78.2 FM Titans Public Radio. I'm Nina, Nina's daughter. During difficult times like these, I like to reflect on the quiet courage of individuals who refuse to let fear define their lives. All over the Earth's sphere, local colonial mayors have responded to exaggerated rumors about giant space lasers and poison gas attacks on neutral colonies with illegal emergency declarations. In many colonies, local officials have defied orders from the Central Federation government and the Titans Public Safety Commission by ordering civilians to take refuge inside colonial civil defense shelters. In some extreme cases, civilians have even been forced to evacuate their colonies altogether. The cumulative effect of these orders has resulted in the worst economic crash to hit the colonies since UC-79. As evidence mounts that only a tiny percentage of the total population has actually been killed in these so-called disasters, many have called for an end to the extreme public safety measures and the resumption of normal economic activity. Organizations like Reopen Raya have staged protests throughout Side 6 against the local shelter-in-shelters order. On Tuesday, His Excellency Jamitov Hyman took to MyEarth to share his support for the protesters, writing that this gas, which many experts are calling the aeug 3 gas, is actually no more deadly than the vacuum of space in which spacenoids live every day. We don't shut down the economy just because space is a relentlessly hostile death zone. Historic words from a visionary leader. After we return, I'll share my interview with two of the brave heroes leading this grassroots campaign against tyranny.
1: And now the recap for Goodbye Rosami.
0: After witnessing the destructive power of the colony laser, Granada is evacuated, its population sheltering in newly dug tunnels deep below the surface of the moon. A few remain, ready to fight on against the Titans. Meanwhile, the Argama and the Radish are on their way to side two. Camille goes to talk to Dr. Hassan and is surprised to run into Emma at the door and to find Char and Fa already inside it seems they all want to ask the doctor about the cyber new type Rosamia Badam. While he cannot say anything conclusively, there were certainly drugs in her blood work that indicate some kind of medical intervention. Camille angrily asks what good making cyber new types would do, and gets even angrier when the doctor muses about pushing the limits of current scientific knowledge. For his part, Shar thinks of how much faster it would be to make cyber new types than to wait for new types to evolve naturally. But then they wouldn't really be new types. Camille insists that this cannot be allowed to happen and storms from the room, Fa chasing after him. The doctor sighs that perhaps it's best to let nature take its course, but Char worries that while they wait, normal humans, old types, will destroy the earth. In the hall, Fa continues to pursue Camille Asking him if he'll be able to fight Rosamia if they meet in the field. He's not sure. After all, types don't necessarily fight because they want to. Fa worries that Rosamia might be programmed to fight. Her wants may not enter into it at all. But Camille angrily insists that you can't program a person. Preparing for its attack on Granada, the Dogos Gear first launches a diversionary gas attack on one of Side 2's colonies. Rosamia has been training with a new mobile suit, the Bound Dock, and seems thrilled with its performance. But we still catch glimpses of Rosami when she tells the Newtype researcher that she is going to defeat the Argama and save her brother. She and another Cyber Newtype, Lieutenant Gates, are left with the gas team in their Bound Docks while the Dogos Gear moves on toward the moon. Other Titan's ships remain, arrayed against the Ayug forces that have just launched their own mobile suits. The mayor of Side 2 watches it all from a command center, arguing with an aide who tells him it's not too late to surrender. But the mayor stands firm. Have you seen that colony laser? What more proof do we need that the Titans don't care about space-noids? Piloting the Methus, Fa, chases a fleeing Barzam and is caught by Rosamia's bounded dock. Camille comes to her rescue and winds up in a dogfight with Rosamia, though it takes them several passes before they sense each other. Rosamia proclaims that she will save her brother, who has clearly been captured by the Zeta. Nonplussed, Camille stutters that it's Rosamia who has been captured and that he has come to take her back to the White Ship. Rosamia seems uncertain, but finally says yes. In that moment, She is overcome with pain. A red aura emanates from the bound dock, and without warning, she fires at Camille. He dodges out of the way, but the shot hits the nearby colony. Firing continuously, brow furrowed, she declares that Zeta dropped the sky, that Zeta crushed her family. With no desire to fight her, Camille dodges, all while calling out and trying to get to the part of her that knows and trusts him. He charges in, her eyes go wide. She seems to freeze, and Camille drags the bound duck through the hole in the colony and to the ground below. Rosamia huddles, terrified, in the dark cockpit of her mobile suit, until Camille opens the door. Framed in light, he reaches out to her and pulls her into the sunshine. They have returned to the colony where they met, and the breeze over the fields and the sounds of birds belie the danger the colony is in the two of them sit together at the edge of a lake, Camille's arm around Rosamia as she leans against him. It makes him think of four, and he wishes he could have been with her like this. Outside, Char manages to fight off several hyzaks and disengage the gas canister before it poisons the colony. Realizing that this is the colony where Minerva was, he wonders if she made it out safely and goes to investigate the villa where she and her retinue were hiding out. He finds the villa in disarray, Furniture broken and overturned, and one of Miniva's maids lying unconscious on the floor. Kneeling down, he takes her in his arms. Lamia, what happened to Minerva? She wakes and assures him that Minerva made it out with Haman, but asks him to protect the young girl. She is kind by nature and couldn't help being born a Zabi. Lamia dies in Shar's arms, and he returns to the Hyakushiki. On his way out of the colony, he senses Camille's presence. Lieutenant Gates arrives in the second bound dock, accompanied by the new type researcher, and they try to use the Saikomu system to re-exert control over Rosamia. Try not to kill her, the researcher reminds Gates. The Saikomu causes Rosamia a great deal of pain, and she staggers back against a boulder. Landing, Gates goes out to Camille and Rosamia, threatening both with a pistol. Camille manages to dodge the pistol fire until the Hyakushiki flies by, providing cover that sends Gates back to the relative safety of his mobile suit. Rosamia seems to control her bound dock remotely, and it transforms into a humanoid shape. She asks Camille who he is, why he keeps trying to give her orders. I'm your brother. (laughs) What nonsense, she replies. Returning to her mobile suit, she tries to crush Camille underfoot, and he flees back to the Zeta. Just as before, he is unwilling to harm Rosamia, even as she tries to kill him. She knocks him to the ground, and is about to deliver the coup de grace when Char comes to his rescue. He and Camille rush back out into space. Rosamia and Gates chase them, but AU reinforcements arrive, and they are forced to retreat as they are badly outnumbered. Camille cries in his cockpit, wondering if Rosamia will ever return to the Argama.
1: Today we are covering episode 42, Goodbye Rosami.
0: Or Sayonara Rosami.
1: And I think we should start by uh, giving as much attention to the broader political issues as the episode does. So there are some broader political implications. Moving on.
0: (laughs) Some of them are very interesting, though. Yes. Uh, Though they do rely on the narration to do a lot of heavy lifting that it hasn't done before. At no time do any of the characters tell us that these are simply diversionary tactics. Only the narration tells us that. And it's not as if we don't see any Titans who could mention it. We see Basque uh, and Basque talking about current missions and deployments and so on. So he could easily have, you know, said something about, we need them to keep Aegug occupied while we da-da-da-da-da. But no, <laughs> altogether too straightforward.
1: But I do really like what they do with the small amount of time that they give to Basque in this episode, the brief conversation that Basque has with his uh, aide-de-camp about Captain Gatti yes, potentially holding the Alexandria back at grips because Gotti is uh, displeased with the increasingly brutal tactics employed by Basque's Titans Task Force.
0: Dissension in the ranks.
1: Yes. And that... Basque and his aide-de-camp both know that this is what they're talking about, even though they never explicitly mention it. It's clear from what they are saying, and it's clear from the way Basque then responds, peeling off the Dogos gear and returning to grips, because he knows that if he loses control of the Titans' forces at grips, then his whole plan will fall apart.
0: If he lets Gadi do this, how many other doubters will start to do the same? Yeah, the The other political moment in this episode really highlights the extent to which, assuming Basque's tactics are, what he says that they are, which is to say, they're being brutal to the colonies in order to crush dissension quickly. They really just want to end the conflict as fast as possible. It's not actually having that result because the other thing that we see is the mayor of the colony under attack talking to his own aides and his attitude, once they are under attack, is we need to defend the colony immediately. And his aide says, wait a second, why aren't we talking about surrendering? Surely there's still time to surrender. And the mayor says, have you seen that weapon? They clearly want to kill all space noids. Yeah.
1: <laughs> like, and this is fantastic because this is not just the mayor, some mayor of this colony. This is that mayor from that other episode, the last time they tried to use poison gas. Is it? Yeah, this is the guy... The, the one who's like, hey, I think we should surrender, his like younger assistant, mm-hmm. is the guy who shot the operator. Oh, This is wow. that control room. I this did is not the side did control room that
0: this was the same. Okay.
1: Yeah. And so this is the mayor who, last time his colony cluster was under threat, was like, we need to negotiate with the Titans. AU can't protect us. We need to surrender now and then figure things out. His resistance has stiffened.
0: Well, because he's seen what is happening to colonies. And frankly, colonies that were not resisting, right? These were not colonies that were fomenting insurrection, particularly. They just happened to be convenient to gas.
1: Or laser beam shoot.
0: So, you know, if compliance won't save you...
1: (laughs) Why comply?
0: Exactly. Your
1: only hope is active total resistance. I think as much as Basque still feels very in control... This episode goes a long way to showing that he he is actually incompetent. He is losing control of his own forces, and all of his efforts to bring the colonies to heal have only strengthened Ayug. And I think Basque's incompetence in this episode is more than just an element of the character himself, but rather a commentary on this sort of character, this sort of brutal, authoritarian, strongman who is all about projecting an aura of complete control, total dominance, absolute power. And yet, in practice, historically speaking, these guys tend to be uh, pretty inefficient, ineffective, corrupt, and incompetent.
0: He can't punch everyone in the face.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's really good.
0: (laughs) In a similar vein, in terms of sort of big world and society wide questions, we also get the discussion about new types, a group of people seemingly of their own volition (laughs) independently show up (laughs) in the doctor's quarters to talk about the cyber new type.
1: I love the comment he has when they all show up about how he's not serving coffee. Mm -hmm. Because if you remember from the research I did about that fortune tester machine uh, back in the Argamas, maybe it was the Radishes, in one of the canteens, What came up was that the mid-80s was a boom time for coffee shops in Japan. They were the trendy, cool place to go hang out.
0: I interpreted that more as this isn't an official meeting. I'm not serving refreshments. Mm. I didn't invite you all here. Therefore, I am not obligated to provide (laughs) refreshments to you.
1: I thought I heard him say something about it not being a kisaten.
0: Oh, perhaps. Because remember, everybody showed up like uninvited. Right. He's like, this isn't some cafe. (laughs) You can't just show up in my office.
1: And this scene is paralleled over on the Titans side because we do have a new type researcher along with two cyber new types, Gates Kappa and Rosamiya Badam, all talking about cyber new type stuff.
0: Kappa, really? Uh, yeah. Hmm. Hmm.
1: Hmm.
0: Kappa is the name of a Japanese mythical creature, is why I'm hmmming.
1: Hmm. One that's capable of stealing your soul through your butthole.
0: But is also very polite.
1: (laughs) He does seem very polite, doesn't he? He does. Uh, Interesting thing about him, he shares a voice actor with uh, Lieutenant Addis from the uh, Day of Dakar episodes. Mm, Okay. He is the likable Young Titans man voice actor.
0: Aha. Not so likable now.
1: More likable than a lot of them.
0: But anyway, they all roll up. Everyone wants confirmation from the doctor that Rosami is a cyber new type and he can't really offer it most of what he says is well I found these mysterious drugs and I can't think of another reason and blah blah, blah. you know <laughs>
1: just like a man of science
0: and it becomes a basically debate on the medical ethics of creating cyber new types and we get three different perspectives the first is the doctor's And his is almost uh, an amoral, like, scientists always want to push the envelope, scientists always want to reach for the next thing. So of course I would like to create, like, superhumans. Of course that's a thing I want to do. And then in more direct opposition to each other, we have Camille and Quattro's positions. Camille's position basically being that it's unethical to perform human experiments. And that any new type created by said experiments wouldn't really be a new type. Quattro acknowledges the second point, (laughs) (laughs) but at the same time, Quattro looks at the state of the earth and says, if the only way to save the earth is to have all of humanity become new types, so that through their sort of new type empathy, they understand and are willing to leave the earth so that it can return to a state of nature. If we wait for that to happen naturally, the earth will be destroyed. It will not happen in time.
1: Quattro making a lot of leaps of logic here. I don't know how Quattro gets from make everybody into cyber new types to and the world is saved. But I guess it comes back down to that strain of new type supremacism that has always been part of Shaquatro's personality going back to first Gundam. Like He really, on a philosophical, religious level, thinks that new types are the salvation of humanity. And once you've reached that conclusion, you don't necessarily need to follow all the steps to explain how it's going to happen.
0: I forget what precise, there's like a term for it philosophically, but this attitude that human life is not superior or better than other life. And therefore, why shouldn't we be willing to experiment on people if it led to saving the entire rest of the
1: planet? I require evidence, like I require <laughs> a logical connection between the the improvements we hope to see in humanity mm-hmm. and the... Uh, Salvation of the planet or whatever.
0: Yeah. It's not as if we've seen evidence that even being a natural new type makes someone
1: good. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Like, because what Quattro seems to be saying is that, well, but new types are good. And so if we just make everyone good, then they will understand that humanity has to leave the Earth alone and then the Earth will be saved. But even natural new types aren't good. Intrinsically.
1: Right. They're just people. Somewhat slightly more empathetic people.
0: I was going to say more vulnerable people, but still people.
1: That too. And you know that old saying about how hurt people hurt people? Those more vulnerable new types are also more dangerous.
0: I have noticed whenever Camille gets into an argument and lets his emotions get the better of him, he runs away. He flees the room. (laughs) He's not really interested in having a debate about the ethics or morality of what's being discussed. He's so angry that they would even entertain the idea of creating cyber new types that he cannot bear to be in their presence anymore.
1: You ever notice that that is also how he fights?
0: Ha, yeah. (laughs) And before we move on to further discussions, I feel like we have to address the kind of creepy Dr. Emma interaction. Yeah. We both had kind of different reads on this my read was that the doctor was being creepy. Like, oh, you look a little sick there. Uh, maybe you should open up your shirt and let me listen to your heartbeat. And she's like, uh, no, creeper, I'm out. <laughs> and then he's like, huh, why did she act so creeped out by me?
1: Being really creepy. Yeah. Um. I also think the doctor might have just been uh, earnestly expressing concern for her physical well-being and like, actually wanted to give her a medical exam and was then befuddled by her running off. But it's a weird, uncomfortable scene. I I think give, even giving it the most generous uh, read, it still comes off kind of gross.
0: There's also just no reason for it to be there unless they needed to pad out time. And I can think of better ways to do that. Why is this scene here?
1: Yeah. I mean, did somebody like, did somebody think this was really funny?
0: Maybe. It was the 80s. Ugh. Anyway, we don't have any better explanation for you than that. Sorry. It's gross. We didn't like it. It should not have been included. Immediately after this discussion, we get into what I think is the sort of meat of the episode, philosophically speaking. And we have a discussion between Fa and Camille to begin it. Fa opens by asking Camille if he's going to be able to fight Rosamia if they meet in the field. And he tells her, quite honestly, he doesn't know. Then she describes cyber new types as programmed to fight. And he says both cyber new types don't necessarily fight because they want to and that you cannot program a person. So he makes a distinction between programming, which feels sort of inhuman, and the other kinds of leverage or manipulation that could be exerted on a person to make them fight even though they don't want to.
1: Well, and I think what Fa says, the part that gets translated as programmed, I think she says something like data input. I think she actually says mm. data input. or Right. That being loan words extracted from English suggests that it's like a technical term. It does feel very inhuman. But what I read from that was a active versus passive distinction that Fa is saying they've been programmed, now they do fighting. Mm-hmm. Whereas Camille is suggesting they're being actively controlled. Mm-hmm. And this is a really important distinction for Camille, because if it's active control, it can be interrupted. It can be
0: broken. And
1: then Rosamia will go back to being the innocent little sister Rosami uh, that Camille really, in his heart, wants her to be and has convinced himself that that is the real her. Whereas if Fah's right and she's been programmed, then the her that is his enemy is just as much the real her and maybe, like, can't be done away with.
0: We come back to this idea when he first confronts Rosamia in battle. Because she asks him, you've been captured by the Zeta. And he says, no, you've been captured. (laughs) And Both of them are kind of right. Yeah. You know, Camille has not been psychologically manipulated or experimented on in the ways that we assume Rosamia has been, but he couldn't show up at the argument and be like, all right, dudes, I'm done. You know, drop me at the nearest colony. I'm good. I'm not going to do this anymore. He doesn't have that option.
1: He has absolutely been psychologically manipulated, but in different ways.
0: He frequently does not want to fight people and does it anyway. In the same ways that he began voluntarily, she could very well have begun voluntarily.
1: She was an orphan. Her parents were killed when the colony fell. Like, it's easy to imagine how she would have wanted revenge in exactly the same way that Camille wanted revenge. The parallels between these two characters are uh, abundant. And the way the Titans, New Type lab people, Gates, and the scientist who, whose name you Wouldn't know, but it's Lauren Nakamoto. The way they talk about the problems of cyber new types, everything they say could also be applied to Camille and Fa and the Argama new types as well. Like, Camille has gotten better and more reliable, but yeah, he's also kind of unstable. And yeah, new types do attract other new types, and that is a problem.
0: Once he gets her out of the bound dock, he shoots at it. I don't know what good he thinks he's going to (laughs) do. But uh, he says... This machine is drawing you into fighting. He shifts the blame away from her.
1: He's not entirely wrong.
0: No, he's not. Because the psychomo system, we know, is being used to manipulate her brainwaves and manipulate her mind.
1: Yeah, we see that earlier on the first time that they come into contact. When Camille saves Fa from Rosamia, they come very close together and they each sense each other. And it's like his proximity to her has drawn the murder baby up to the surface. It had been submerged, but now it comes up to the surface. And for a brief moment, it actually takes control. Mm-hmm. But then it's, maybe it's the bound dock actively exerting some sort of psychic pressure. Maybe it's just being in the cockpit and seeing the controls triggers a flashback and the murder lady reemerges. They fight for a little bit over control and then, uh, it's only when Camille mentions Shinta and Koum that Murder Baby is able to take control again. There's a sense throughout Zeta of fatalism, of people being powerless before their own destinies, a sense of the war as having a kind of gravity that sucks you in and won't let you go. And that exists both in a metaphorical kind of way because cycles of violence, violence perpetuates violence, revenge leads to more revenge and so on. And of course you get characters like Quattro, who are just hungry for the excitement, for the thrill of battle. But also, because this is Mecha, the metaphors get rendered in machine form in the show. And so you get the psychomu, you get the Psycho Gundam, and now the Bound Dock, which are actively, actually, literally exerting psychic pressure on their pilots to make them fight.
0: Well... In the same way that to somewhat alter the old saying about how when you have a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. If you have a Gundam.
1: (laughs) Womp, womp, womp.
0: But an interesting distinction comes up at the end of their fight. Because while Camille seems to demonstrate a willingness to die rather than hurt her, because he would have done if Quattro hadn't shown up and fought her off. He does not hold her at all personally responsible for any of her actions. Not one. (laughs) Camille's tearful last line in the episode is, Who is making you fight?
1: Who do I need to kill to save you?
0: But Camille has already demonstrated through his own behavior that even in an impossible situation like his, you have personal decision-making power. We also see that from Gotti. Like,
1: yeah, Gotti, who actively participated in a poison gas operation, commanded the ship behind it, and yet now has decided he's not willing to do that anymore.
0: Right. That what is so difficult about these situations and these characters is contending with all of the extenuating circumstances that make the horrible things that they do understandable to us and You know, excite our empathy and sympathy for them, but also the fact that they are nobody's holding a gun to their heads, strictly speaking. There's a cocked fist, perhaps, which is certainly scary, but it's not a life or death choice. And we even see people like Camille make the life or death choice and choose death rather than doing something that goes against their conscience. And so those choices are still possible and they are still making choices even in the midst of these conditions.
1: And even though she's not present in this episode, what an indictment of Rekawa!
0: It ends up being an indictment of most of them. Yeah. Really?
1: Yeah. But let's talk about why it is that Camille is so unwilling to assign personal blame to Rosami.
0: Well, he's pillared her, right? If anybody doesn't know what I mean, I mean like put up on a pillar, put up on a pedestal. I was very struck by the scene where he's leaving and Shinta and Kum are watching, which we know they've done before because they mention how cool it looks when he launches in the Zeta. But to Camille's mind, they can't possibly be there to see him off. They must be there because they're hoping he'll bring Rosamia back. I don't think that at all. I think they were just there to watch him launch. And then when he told them, I'm going to bring back Rosamia, they were like, oh, sweet.
1: I mean, they did seem a little uncharacteristically glum when he was launching. Perhaps. At that point, we are seeing them through Camille's eyes, maybe Camille's projecting. However, I think it's important to note the specific dynamic of this relationship, and the episode makes a point of highlighting it, because we have these scenes where they are visually presented like lovers, especially the scene that we see reflected through pond water um, before it's disrupted by some birds coming through, Mm -hmm. where they're standing embracing like they're about to kiss. The visual language is unambiguous. A kiss is about to happen, and she calls him older brother. And at a different point in the episode, they talk explicitly about this weird, fluid girlfriend-sibling relationship that they have. It's when they're uh, sitting on the, the lawn.
0: Cuddled up together.
1: Mm-hmm. In Colony 13, which, by the way, is where they first met. Um, and they're talking about four. Rosami asks... If four was his girlfriend and Camille says, no, Camille says, our relationship was more like what you and I have. Rosami says, oh, so she was like your older sister. Camille says, yes. And I think Rosami is actually being really perceptive here because that is the relationship that Camille is seeking with these women. Like there's that aspect of skirt chasing. There's that aspect of romance because they are like teenage, you know, young men and young women.
0: They're his peers.
1: Of course, there's going to be some of that, but what Camille is really looking for is a family.
0: Like a nurturing family relationship, and preferably one where he is the one being looked after a little bit.
1: (laughs) Well, that's not the situation with Rosami.
0: No, but if what he was looking for was an older sister, he is looking for someone to protect him. And it is one of the things he remembers the most about Four. When he tells Rosami about Four, he says, she protected me in battle.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, he did not have siblings growing up he grew up in an abusive family environment he might have spent his time longing for an older sibling who could protect him or now he might be seeking those kinds of connections and camille you know unlike Amro, who also had a very difficult upbringing also very neglected emotionally nonetheless on the white base found a family found it very quickly very readily, they were emotionally available to him. That has not been Camille's experience on the Argama. As much as it is a shadow of a white base, as much as there is sort of a family there, uh, Bright is not his dad. Emma is not his mom. Both of them consciously, expressly reject that. You know, Bright repeatedly says, I cannot be a dad to this kid. Emma says he's starting to look at me like a mother and that's a problem. Like, they reject it. They reject Camille. They reject the family that he's trying to create. Rekoa betrays him. Four dies. And now...
0: And now his little sister.
1: Goodbye, Rosami.
0: I was less struck by it the second time watching this episode, but the the awe-inspiring selfishness of mid-battle taking a powder with this cute girl you're trying to save while all of your allies are fighting to the death and trying to prevent a colony from being gassed. Excuse me? <laughs>
1: In his defense, it's clear he didn't know about the gas attack.
0: Also, the weird level of calm, like she punched a hole in this colony and apparently nothing bad is happening with that and it doesn't matter.
1: It's a relatively small hole. The colonies are very big. Uh, Something bad would happen to it eventually if nothing were done about it.
0: All right, you know... (laughs) That sort of thing tends to get treated with much more urgency in Mm -hmm. previous episodes that we've seen, even when they were small holes caused by mobile
1: suits. You are absolutely correct about that.
0: I just come back to Quattro's line. Camille, do you know what you are doing?
1: (laughs) And the answer is always
0: no. The answer is always no. Of course not. Did you notice the framing when Camille comes to fetch Rosamia from the bound dock? She's like shivering with fear. In her dark cockpit, he appears framed by light, glowing, you know, it's almost
1: almost
0: angelic as he reaches out for her and they emerge into a kind of Eden, birds chirping, horses grazing, beautiful, beautiful fields near a lake or a river.
1: But it cannot last. There is nowhere that can remain untouched by the war and neither of them can escape from it. And it's not the arrival of Gates Kappa and Nakamoto in the other bound dock that really brings Rosamia back into it. Because it's after they've been shot down by Quattro that she has this, like, we see her almost like expel some vile red energy out of her body. And it's then that the bound dock, as though alive, transforms and approaches her.
0: Speaking of which... Sorry, Bjarland, I have a new favorite mobile <laughs> suit, mobile armor, whatever. It looks like a lobster at first, doesn't it? Before it transforms, mm. like a very chonky lobster, little claw arms.
1: I can see how you got that, yeah.
0: Or a bug. It has a definite
1: like kind of beetle-y.
0: crustacean-y appearance. Mm-hmm. And then its wonderfully pointy face and its weird little ears. Gosh, I really like it.
1: You have chosen um, one of the most controversial mobile suit designs. Really? Yes.
0: Well, if you hate it, you're wrong.
1: <laughs> There's your wrong of opinion, everybody.
0: <laughs> Maybe so. I'm still not yet enmeshed enough in the fandom to care if you all think <laughs> that's a terrible choice, but I really like the bound duck.
1: I hope that you never get so enmeshed in the fandom as to care. <laughs> what other people think of the mobile suits that you love. If you love the bound dock, then you should embrace it.
0: Now I'm picturing a, like a plushie of one so I can hug it. So I can literally embrace it.
1: It would not be that hard to make a a plushie of the, like what you called it's lobster mode. (laughs) There's a bunch of times in this episode where Rosamia is, um, talking about the bound dock, but she's talking about it as though it were herself. When Camille attacks uh, when she's fighting Fa, she doesn't say, are you attacking me? She says, are you attacking this bound dock? And later on, towards the end of the episode, she says, the Zeta Gundam is the greatest enemy of the Titans and the bound dock. Like, she's giving it a persona.
0: If it's storing her brainwaves, it may well be part of her. Like, if you could stash part of your human memory in an external device, doesn't that thing become you to some extent like I mean that's that's some deep (laughs) philosophy there that we're not equipped to get into right now but you know you talk about it having this responsiveness to her brainwaves of it interacting with her and independently of her if there's some of her in it then it's not merely a matter of her personally choosing to identify with this thing it's Like, actually part of her being.
1: Or vice versa. She is a component of the bound dock.
0: She mentions when they first launch how being in the cockpit, in the beauty of space, feels right to her. Like, that feels correct. And she seems at some of her most stable at that point. And then she gets a little flash of something. She's like, whoops, (laughs) and looks anxious again. But for a brief moment, she's like, ah, to be flying this incredible machine through the beauty of space. This is the life. And now Tom's research on the bound dock.
1: Zeta repeats itself once again, another psychologically fractured new type girl, another tragic parting, another selfish attempt by Camille to reach the innocent part of her personality that he would like to believe is the real her, and another giant transforming psychically active mobile weapon with a built-in brain machine interface meant to turn a cyber new type into a perfect weapon. But where the Murasame Laboratory's Psycho Gundam was a monstrous mirror to the original RX-78-2 Gundam, the Bound Dock is a more unique creature. Designed by legendary mecha designer Kobayashi Makoto, back when he was merely up-and-coming young mecha designer Kobayashi Makoto, the Bound Dock is a great exemplar of his style. Rather than creating a mechanical body... Kobayashi's mecha are constructed from bulging, oversized segments that look like stylized garments or parts of buildings or the carapaces of enormous insects, all linked together by emaciated, almost skeletal connective tissue. Consider the bound dock. Its feet are actually claws emerging from bulbous ankles. Its legs disappear inside a skirt that is equal parts 19th century bustle dress and scarab beetle. Its waist and torso, especially when Kobayashi draws it, uh, is little more than the spinal column. Its arms, likewise, are long and narrow, except with an armored forearm's bulge, resembling the limbs, perhaps, of an insect. The asymmetry of the machine is striking, too. One shoulder looks like the boom of a crane— The other is round, swollen, and with a black slit in in the middle to make it look like an eyeball or maybe the bottom of a bell. I thought eyeball, Nina thought bell. (laughs) The head is the part that's most interesting to me, so I'll be coming back to that in a minute. In recent years, Kobayashi has spoken about the dysfunctional environment behind the scenes of Zeta Gundam's production. Now, the series is legendary for its mecha design and for bringing together established legends like Okawara Kunio and rising stars like Nagano Mamoru, Fujita Kazumi, Kondo Kazuhisa, and Kobayashi himself. But in a recent interview, Kobayashi explained that this doesn't really capture the full story. According to Kobayashi, Okawara played little role in Zeta's production, and he's credited as one of the show's two mechanical designers mostly because of his fame and because a number of his old designs, like mobile suits from First Gundam and the MSV Gunpla series, do appear in minor roles. Fujita, the other credited mechanical designer, left the project midway through production, as did Nagano, and much of their work had to be finished afterwards by anonymous design assistants. Kobayashi himself would produce a handful of designs for Zeta besides the bound dock, Among these were the Marasai and the Gaza Sea. And while both are more conventional mobile suits than the Bound Dock is, you can still see the designer's unique style in them. The Marasai has that organic bulge and swell, especially in the legs, and its head features a helmet design that looks like a less stylized version of the Bound Docks. The Gaza Sea mobile suits deployed by Axis have that emaciated ribs and spine look to their torsos, Uh, They have feet that also become claws, and arms that look more than a bit like industrial machinery, more so than arms, at least. But it's the Bound Dock that seems to be a favorite of Kobayashi's. He said on Twitter back in 2017 that he first developed the basic design that would eventually become the Bound Dock, perhaps as early as 1979. And in the early 1980s, he was in talks with Sunrise to develop a mecha anime based on one of his self published comics. Uh, that would have incorporated it, or something like it. That fell through in the early 80s when Macross exploded onto the scene and rewrote the rules of mecha merchandising. From 1982 on, the hot new gimmick was transformation. Everything had to be transformable. The project fell through and the bound dock went back into the filing cabinet to be pulled out in a few years and submitted for Zeta Gundam. But now you might be saying, hang on, Tom. Why would transforming gimmicks be a problem? The Boundock does transform. And yes, I would say back to you, that is very interesting, isn't it? That tells us that the original design for the Doc must not have transformed. And in fact, Kobayashi sounds pretty disdainful of the transformation gimmick as a whole, and he said that he felt it was always a bad fit for Gundam. It just took Sunrise the better part of a decade to figure that out. On Twitter, Kobayashi shared pictures of a scale model he built according to the original design for the machine, and while it does mostly look like the bound dock that we know and Nina loves, it doesn't look like it would be able to transform. So at the very least, we can guess that the transformation and the mobile armor form of the bound dock were created specifically for Zeta Gundam. After his work on Zeta in 1985 and Double Zeta in 1986, Kobayashi took a second crack at turning that old comic of his into something bigger. This turned into the Dragon's Heaven manga in 1986, which was successful enough to get a 30-minute direct-to-video OVA adaptation with Kobayashi directing. Released in 1988, Dragon's Heaven is stylish, gorgeous, and features our friend the Bound Doc's legally distinct twin sibling, the Gomp. But let's talk about that name, Bound Doc. When you first start encountering the names in Gundam, it's tempting to just throw up your hands, declare them all to be ridiculous nonsense, and spend the rest of your days wandering the world, pointing at unexpected pairings of words and declaring, that is a Gundam name. There's nothing wrong with doing that, mind you, but after you've been studying the names for a little while, you will start to notice some patterns. The first such pattern, the one easiest for us to recognize, is foreign words adopted directly into Japanese. This is how Aznavur, rendered into Japanese, became Azanaburu. Jamaican became Jamaican. Alexandria became Alexandria. Solomon became Soroman. And Gun Cannon became Gan cannon. The second pattern is names based on Japanese puns. Think about how zaku actually means small fry, and musai means idiot. Or how the title of a popular folk song for children gave us the name of the, hang on, we haven't gotten to that one yet. The third pattern, and this is where things do get pretty weird, is nonsense names constructed out of sounds that work well together. It's always hard to know for sure which names fit into this category because it's always possible that a name which sounds nonsensical at first blush might turn out, on further investigation, to have a plausible origin, like how the gadflay seems to have been based on the word gadfly, and the methus is actually the Japanese metasu, meaning many-eyed. But we have good reason to believe that some names do fit into this nonsense category, because Tomino himself has said that he would sometimes do this. He would make up silly-sounding nonsense names, in order to mess with the higher ups in the studio and at the sponsor, the only one I've ever heard positively identified as such is the gelgoog or gerugugu in Japanese, and you can sort of see how he might have come up with that one if he was just mixing sounds together. It's got, it's just got great mouth feel. Gerugugu. Personally, I suspect that kakurikon kakuru might be another one of these, although I'm also open to the idea that Capricorn might derive from Capricorn. So that brings us now to pattern four. Recognizable words that have been futzed a bit to make them easier to trademark, harder to recognize, or both. So this category would include Gundam, a portmanteau of gun and freedom, and vagina instead of vagina. It might include Hija from Jed, Hambrabi from Hammurabi, Garubaldi from Garibaldi. But the more a word gets mangled, the harder it is to trace its origins. Luckily for us, though, the bound dock is pretty recognizable and its origin is quite well known. First, some context. When you're writing foreign loan words in Japanese, you'll generally use the writing system katakana. Katakana is a syllabic alphabet, meaning each character represents a particular syllable. There are 48 katakana characters, of which only 46 see regular use today. But there are more than 48 syllables in the Japanese language, so some sounds are represented by taking a similar-sounding character and adding a diacritical mark to alter the pronunciation. So, a character that would normally be pronounced ha can become ba, depending on which mark you attach to it. The boundo-doku uses diacritical marks in three places to make the ba sound at the beginning and the do sounds at the end of boundo and the beginning of doku. But if you take the diacritical mark off the first syllable and you put it on the last syllable, then instead of bound-dok, you get... Hound dog. Hound dog. But why hound dog? Well, the thing's head is kind of dog-like. I wouldn't have said a hound dog, but that's because I'm from the United States, and the hounds that I knew growing up were all the different variations on floppy-eared and round-snouted. Whereas the bound dog's head, while absolutely canine in appearance, is pointy in just about every way that a thing can be pointy. The very narrow head tapers to a very pointy snout. Its very pointy ears stand up off the top of the head like a pair of knives, forever stabbing the sky. But there are hound dogs with heads like that, especially in breeds from North Africa, like the Basenji, the Abyssin Hound, or the Pharaoh Hound. It's the lattermost that I think bears the closest resemblance to the Bound Dock, with its lean, muscular body and its dagger-shaped ears. But rather than suggesting that the bound dock got its appearance from the pharaoh hound, I think we have to dig one layer deeper. Because the bound dock's head doesn't just look like a dog's head, after all. The ear-like protrusions are too long and too sharp. And at the back of the head, there's that sloping curve, like the back of a helmet. This feature it shares with the Morasai, But attached to the head of the bound dock, it doesn't look like the back of a helmet. It kind of looks like the headdresses worn by Egyptian gods. And together with the ears and the snout, the bound dock's head looks like that of jackal-headed god Anubis. And lest you think I am reading too much into the look of that head, there will be later variations on the bound dock, and those are just going to straight up include the names of different Egyptian gods as part of their official canonical mobile suit names.
0: Before you got to that point, I was going to say, this is sounding a little... Guy with cut-out articles and string. (laughs) But I feel like that point makes it.
1: Yeah. For instance, this comes from a manga, so I feel like I can say this. Okay. There's a version that takes two bound docks, takes the legs off, and sticks them together like this. And it's called the Amon Dock.
0: Hmm.
1: (laughs) Anubis was one of the many gods of death, dying, and the dead... In the long and ever-fluctuating Egyptian pantheon. He was one of the oldest and the most popular gods, and one whose responsibilities generally kept him too busy to engage in the sort of dynastic squabbles and misadventures that make for good myth-telling. He was the inventor of mummification, protector of the dead, and their guide on the way to the westward lands where they would reside after passing from life. In his early aspect, Anubis was also the judge and ruler of the dead, But sometime around 2300 BCE, Osiris rose to prominence as the most important of the gods of the dead, and so he usurped some of Anubis' responsibilities. Still, the dog-headed older god was always called upon to protect and guide the dead. For the living, he could be summoned to defend against curses or to inflict curses on others with his army of demon servants. He was a powerful guardian of order, charged with punishing those who defied the dictates of the gods. And within a person's own internal psychology, Anubis was said to restrain that impulse, which we all feel, to sow disorder just for the sake of it. When the worship of these two gods of the dead, Anubis and Osiris, collided, the older Anubis was absorbed into the mythic origin story of Osiris. For a more detailed version of that, you can refer to my research piece on the Deja back in episode 2.39.
0: Clearly someone was on an ancient Egyptian religion kick.
1: I rather think they were. But the short version of the Osiris myth is that Osiris was once the ruler of the living before he was killed by his jealous brother Set. Osiris was then resurrected, but he ceded his authority over the living to his son Horus before traveling to the lands of the dead and becoming their king. Different versions of the Osiris myth give different reasons for Set's murderous jealousy of his brother, but one story says that Set's wife, the goddess Nephthys, fell in love with Osiris. She used her sorcery to transform herself to look like Isis, his wife, and in that disguise she seduced her brother-in-law. She became pregnant and bore a child, but fearful that Set would discover her betrayal, she abandoned the baby. Learning what had happened, Isis sought out the abandoned child, and adopted him, raising him as though he were her own. And that baby grew up to be Anubis. A child, adopted with open arms by the enemies of their natal family? Doesn't that sound a little bit like Rosami? But the other aspects of Anubis fit the bound doc, too, a guardian of order fighting against the forces that seek to destabilize the world? the show has referenced other mythological figures who fit that same description. The titan Atlas is the most famous, but the Sudori also takes its name from one of the Norse pillars of heaven, guardians of order, those who hold up the sky. And given the way Rosamia talks about the sky falling, there's a good chance that she sees herself and the bound doc as holding up the heavens. A divine incarnation of the part of your mind that restrains your more impulsive behaviors. The bound dock literally controls its pilot's mind and restrains the more impulsive murder baby Rosami personality. A source of powerful curses? It certainly seems to have inflicted a powerful curse on Rosamiya and Camille. And if, as Camille has come to believe, the power of new types allows them to transcend the strict boundaries of life and death, to reject the cruel dictates of linear time and the inevitable entropy of human existence, then what is the psychomu except a means of mediating between the worlds of the living and the dead? And if the Boundoc's mobile suit form is meant to evoke Anubis, then what of its mobile armor configuration, the one that looked like a lobster to Nina? Well, from this perspective, it starts to look a lot like another symbol from the ancient Egyptian religion, the scarab. Scarabs were amulets crafted to resemble the sacred scarab beetles, and their shape closely resembles the Bound Dock's transformation. This then adds another layer of nuance to the Bound Dock's meaning, for the Scarab too has associations linked to Rosamia. Although it was principally a symbol of creation and rebirth linked to the sun, the Scarab also had a role in funerals and in the passage between life and death that was overseen by Anubis. Scarab amulets were buried with mummies, At first, just one that was placed over the deceased person's heart, but over time, more were added to the ritual, and these were distributed throughout the coffin. There is good reason to believe that these amulets were meant to serve as replacement organs—a magical heart, for example, in place of mortal flesh. These are early indications of that very human drive to challenge our body's natural limitations— this is the same drive that the Doctor references early on in this episode, and which motivates all the horrors of the cyber Newtype program. And the heart scarab I mentioned just a moment ago had a special role. You see, it was believed that when the dead were between this world and the next, they would be tested by Anubis and observed by a panel of judging gods. Their heart would be weighed against a single feather, and if the heart was lighter than the feather then they would pass on into the afterlife. But should their heart fail the test, then the deceased would be instantly devoured by a hippopotamus, ceasing to exist for all eternity. To make matters worse, there was always the chance that your own heart, which contained your soul and all of your knowledge, might betray you during the testing. It might stand as a witness against you in the trial, giving evidence of your misdeeds, turning the judges against you and dooming you to the hippopotamus. So the heart scarab was inscribed with a magical spell that would bind your heart and prevent it from turning against your soul at the moment of greatest and final judgment. Thus, like Anubis, the scarab is a symbol of psychological unity which acknowledges the fragmented, internally conflicted and self-defeating tendencies of the human mind Both are symbols of unity of self and purpose that is imposed by an external force, just like what the Bound doc does to Rosamia.
0: Next time, we take a brief break from Zeta and sad boys in space since it has been a tough mentally taxing month. Instead of our regularly scheduled programming, I will review future Gundam series based entirely on the cover art of their Blu-ray and DVD releases. This will involve me asking such questions as, Do I like the art? What can I learn about the main characters, based entirely on their hair, clothes, and facial expressions? Is the name of the series intriguing? And, how do I feel about the mobile suits? You will hear Tom laugh as I speculate wildly.
1: Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at Facebook.com slash for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, gundampodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to gundampodcast at gmail.com. Or continue to share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting, the new bound dock Gunpla is a waste of plastic that should be used to make a new limited-release Unicorn variant, one with a new hat, out your window at Passersby. We might not hear you, but you'll be helping all of us stay safe. The Wrong Gundam Opinion this week was submitted by patron Eldritch B. Thank you, Eldritch B. The TNN this week includes a section from Gustav Sting by Kevin McLeod. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening.
0: Would you aim your light a little downward? Sorry, it was just shining in my face a little bit.
1: Don't you do it! (laughs) Reveal the truth, spy! He
0: delights in tormenting me, listeners.
1: I mean, they already know we're married. I feel like they could just assume that.
0: (laughs) You beat me to my punchline. Classic marriage stuff.
1: You just sounded like you were about to respond.
0: I was just like... I got really excited about a thing I was going to say, but you should finish your point.
1: Uh, more like hopscotch than, uh, I don't know, I, I didn't think that went all the way through. But... <laughs> <laughs> the point is.
0: Uh... No, now, I won't make you debate this on the podcast. <laughs> Fa opens by asking Camille if he is going to be able to fight Requa and he's not sure. Rosemar? Right, Sorry, yeah. Fa <laughs> Or Requa. <laughs> um. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> <laughs>
1: not for recording, but pretty cool. Uh, um.
0: Yeah, it's still going. Yep. Good Lord. <laughs> Once he gets her out of the Bound Dock, how's it pronounced? Bound?
1: Bound Dock. We... It was a dark and stormy night <laughs> and we were recording a Gundam podcast.
0: Uh, I have one more thing to add. I think we should just
1: work through the, th- the just thunder. Just work through light. the thunder? All
0: right. We're Warning,
1: <laughs> listeners. We are recording this in the middle of a thunderstorm. All right, I'm going to stop the recording.
0: Oh, one one good light. last thought. Hang on. Don't hover. It's like <laughs> freaking me out. Sorry. And in a similar vein, for our discussions of Camille and Rosamia, Lamia begs Quattro, begs Star to look after Minerva because after all, she can't help that she was born a zombie.
1: Recording has been started. There will be no accidentally not recording today. Who's, whose fault is it? Who remembers? I mean, really?
0: I mean... Obviously, it's because you carry such a heavy load. I mean, mm-hmm. really, produce the whole podcast by yourself. No <laughs> help. Is it any wonder that you forget to turn the record button on?
1: I mean, I do, I do script all of your dialogue, even for the talkback.
0: I'm a computer-generated voice.
1: <laughs> Nina is a complicated neural network. That's what the N stands for.
0: Let's be real. If teenage Tom had been able to meet and romance a robot instead of a <laughs> live woman, I wouldn't have stood a chance. No comment. <laughs> I was trying. I was stifling a yawn.
1: I was
0: <laughs> holding it in. and Instead, I made a face that <laughs> caused Tommy to be like, whoa, isn't know all right?
1: Am I crazy or is it still going? Now that's a smooth transition. Oh, no. Now <laughs> <Just> that <laughs> That's <word>. Praxis. <laughs>
0: I love that it's the hippopotamus, the deadliest creature in the Nile. (laughs)